Kala for Lava and welcome to the Global Bus Figure Success Podcast. I'm Andrew Fawali, your host. Every week I'll be chatting with successful Pacific people from across the globe, unpacking their stories and more importantly, picking out insights, lessons and golden nuggets you can use to live your best life too. All right, thanks for joining us for just the second episode of the show. Uh, since last week, our first show dropped. We've had so much feedback and we really appreciate it. A lot of you really resonated and enjoyed John Tapu's story. John is the founder of Carverball Media and he explained that he went from CSR or customer services to launching his own company. Look, the feedback shows and affirms to us that these stories need to be told and also more importantly, probably they need to be heard. Um, so thank you for all the feedback. Please keep it coming so we can refine what we do and so that we can provide the best platform for these stories as possible. Shifting our focus then to this week's episode, we have a really special guest joining us. And personally, I think it's a real coup that we get to hear from and also learn from the insights of one of the Pacific's sharpest minds, Associate Professor Damon Salesa. Damon is the Pacific's first Rhodes Scholar. He's a prize-winning author and formerly an associate professor at the University of Michigan in the States. Currently, he's the pro-vice-chancellor pro, pro Pacific at the University of Auckland. Sorry, you know how um, university guys are all nerds? Do they say stuff like, hey, pro-vice-chancellor? Do they say professor or... Like do your, do your nerdy, you know, they're like all nerds. Do they we like prefer intelligent? I think. Okay. The way we, <laughs> do they go, hey, bro, and <laughs> do they do that? Oh, it's a diverse world, so yeah. there's some that do it. But okay. professors, uh, I think you can probably trademark that one. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for the other listeners that are listening. I can't. You kind of need to acknowledge because it's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I thought we were on the last one, and then I've got. Sorry, so I'm. So I've got uh, our good friend uh, Johnny Tapu, co-founder and director of Coverball Media, co-hosting with me. Oh, thanks so, for having thanks, me, guys. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you, sorry to forget about. It's <laughs> okay. It's an honour to have you here. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Privilege, bro. <laughs> so yeah, back to you, Damon. Can you just tell us about your um, upbringing and? You know, oh, so, and so I'm Auckland, born and raised. I yeah. grew up in uh, Glen Innes. Um, grew up in like Glenninus Hards, Glenninus Primary, Glenninus Intermediate, now closed down. Um, Tamaki PIC, so what was then Point England PIC. Um, my father is from uh, Faleolupo and Satupuala. Yeah. And my mother's uh, um, from up north of Balangi, from up, up north in, in New Zealand. Sweet. And so, yeah, grew up uh, four brothers and sisters and uh, just kind of grew up local, pretty typical. Um, upbringing for someone like me um, you know in the church my father worked in the same factory pretty much my whole life he worked 44 years at Fisher and Paykel in East Tamaki yeah. um, and yeah and then when I was uh, I was the fourth of the five kids and yeah I loved all the stuff that kids love so I was uh, big into basketball and rugby yeah. loved school loved uh, reading um, and then yeah at the end of school the question was where do you go? And so I was encouraged by my teachers and um, my parents to go to university. So went to Auckland University with my same time as actually my older sister. Oh, so sure. we were the first two in our our family to go to university. And you know, after I did, then did a bachelor's and master's in history at Auckland, and then went in. Uh, then I was lucky enough to get the Rhodes Scholarship and 
did a PhD, which in Oxford they call a DPhil, and then did that in Oxford. And so that sort of spoke for a big chunk of life. And then after I got my Oxford PhD, I did a kind of writing fellowship at the National Library and the Turnbull Library in Wellington. And then I took a job at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in Michigan in the United States. And so I taught there for a long time, 10 years. Sweet. And then um, with my wife, Jenny, we, we had two kids in the States and we wanted them to grow up in the Pacific, wanted them to be around their family because that was a great job. We loved their life, but there's no substitute for home. There's no substitute for family. And so we came back um, nearly eight years ago. And I've been back at Auckland since then. And I came back to be the head of Pacific Studies. And then for the last couple of years, I've not really been an, an academic. I've been in university leadership. And so that began as director of uh, Pacific Strategy Engagement. And then I was made um, actually New Zealand's first uh, pro-vice chancellor of Pacific. Man, it's crazy because, you know, obviously this is a podcasting show about Pacific success and we've just talked in about three minutes about your lifespan and within that there are just some things that are really elite in terms of success like Rhodes Scholarship, first uh, first head of Pacifica and was it the first PVC? Pacific um, yeah, PVC in New Zealand. Pacific PVC, yeah. But before we go into that, I just want us to you to paint us a picture around GI and your upbringing. For those who are abroad, Fisher and Paco for us here in New Zealand is one of those factories that we all know. Yeah. So can you just paint the picture around that and where your roots lay? Yeah, so Glen Innes, when, when it was built in the 60s, was New Zealand's largest social housing estate. And we lived not in a, in a state house, but next door in one of the other places. And we were fortunate enough to own our own home because a factory worker could buy a house in Auckland in those days, which yeah. is not true anymore. And that meant Glen Innes began in the 60s as a kind of white working class neighbourhood in the late 50s and 60s, and then began a transition, like most of the big social housing estates in New Zealand, to becoming increasingly Māori and Pacific. So even even places now we think of as Pacific and Māori hard, like Ōtara, began as almost white working class suburbs, Mm. and then with quite rapid transitions to being predominantly Māori and Pacific. And so I was at school when that happened, when mm. when basically all the white kids left. And, you know, so when I began at Glenis Primary, there were still Pākehā kids. By the time I got to Glenis Intermediate, that that was... Well, why did, you know, when I was in... Uh, we had probably had two or three Pārangi kids left at Intermediate. Yeah. Why did they leave? Well, one of the reasons was... I mean, the, the oh, prob- we didn't yeah, say, so, hey, didn't kick them out. <laughs> hey, move out. <laughs> did they just go, oh, oh man, they're moving in, we should move out? Like, but that was your neighbourhood. We never told you to move out. Yeah, no, there's definitely a part of that. Um, you know, New Zealanders are really uncomfortable with the idea that they might make racially based decisions about their lives. I mean, particularly Parker people are uncomfortable with it. But the evidence is all in. I mean, you don't produce, like Auckland has about close to a dozen schools, high schools, that are almost entirely Māori and Pacific. And that simply cannot happen unless all the kids who are not there make a choice to go somewhere else. And so that choice in New Zealand is is most obvious when people choose schools and where they're going to live. Now, Māori and Pacific people have historically not had as much choice because they don't own their own homes at anywhere near the rates that Mm. Pākehā people do. So they mostly live in social housing or disproportionately so about half of um, social housing residents are Māori and Pacific and Auckland the rate's even higher so the government sends you to a social house and then um, 
if you want to live somewhere else, you have to be socially mobile enough to move out. But actually you can leave the school before you leave the neighbourhood, which yeah. is what's happened in, in Glen Innes and Otara. Mm. And so Glen Innes, you can, the, the local school, Tamaki College, which I didn't go to, like you two, we, I, I was sort of sent yeah. a neighbourhood across to Selwyn College. Um, you can see it on the walls. They have the class the year pictures of mm. all the students and it's it's like De La Salle you know mm. De La Salle was originally a parkhouse school and you watch it it's all parkhouse students and then in the space of like two or three years it's it's really striking yeah. all of a sudden the, the composition of the school radically changes and you know the issue in New Zealand is not only is it radically changed to being a Māori and Pacific school the change back is very slow in fact we, we have very few schools where we see um, the re-diversification of a school meaning including Parker kids. So that's kind of an external thing, because I, I remember in Manurewa, both next-door neighbours were Bālangis, but I didn't really realise that they had moved out. All I did was play with the kids, and we all got along, and when the Beagleys and the Richleys moved out, then the Hediotas moved in, you know. Were they really the Richleys? <laughs> the Richleys. <laughs> you know, so for us as kids, we didn't care who our neighbours were. We would play with the army soldiers and stuff mm. and play backyard cricket with whoever moved in, but the parents were making decisions mm. yeah. that were impacting us yeah. that we didn't really yeah. know. And now that I come to think of it, I'm just assuming, and I'm obviously generalising, but it's like, hey, Mary, we need to move out because Sione and Fifita are moving in. And our house prices are going to go down, and we kind of need to sell while we still got a good price and go buy in a better suburb. Is that what actually happened? No, it's not because house prices <coughs> house prices haven't really gone down in Auckland, so it's much more around aspiration. And okay. I mean, New Zealanders. I mean, I wrote a book that sort of lays this out in a longer form, but New Zealanders put a a lot more of their wealth in their home. You know, in other countries, you have a lot of wealth and things like retirement mm. funds stocks. and stocks. But New Zealanders, it's in their house. And so decisions are often built around big wealth-making decisions. And so because that's a lot around the value of the house is how much wealth we have. So a lot of it is driven by that. And then there's, again, it comes back to this, there is a, a racial perception that, for instance, many Parker people have trouble drawing a distinction between a good school and a brown school. So in their mind, the whiter the school, the better the school is. And there's no evidence to support this, but that's what drives um, school selection. And there's also, in New Zealand more broadly, and this includes people who are not um, who are brown as well, make a decision they believe that a poor school is a bad school. So a wealthy school is a better place to send your kids. If there's more park our kids, it's a better school. And actually, we have very good evidence that Pacific kids often, especially when we make comparable comparisons, mm. that they do just as well in these schools that are, uh, have some sort of bad reputation, that the quality of teaching is very different to the public perception of school quality. Mm. And, you know, so we were all part of that. And, and you know, every parent wants to make what, the decision what's best for their kids, and we don't begrudge that. Mm. But we have to come to terms with why we're making decisions. Mm. And, you know, most of the, for instance, schools in South Auckland, if we cut out East Auckland, most of those schools are decile one to three schools. In fact, almost across the whole of, of South Auckland, if you take out the private schools like King's, where Pacific and Māori, especially Pacific kids are, we have low decile schools. That's not a sign of quality, that's just a sign of the wealth of families. And, you know, Pacific people are filled with stories about poor kids who who that didn't define them. 
They did wonderful things. Is there a difference between the ability or capability of a teacher who has a job at Mangri College and a teacher who has a job at King's College? Because, unfortunately, I've been influenced by that, what you mm. just spoke about. And, like, I'm South Auckland hard, but I will not send my kids to Mangri College because, for some reason, my brain is... Where my no. aunt is deputy principal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm not sending. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I know they can go to King's. They can learn X amount of languages. They have the best of the best, supposedly, and that's why isn't yeah. isn't well. There's, there's, there's a clear distinction. There's a lot of things in that. So just to unpack some obvious things. One is poorer schools, and this is a function often across the world. Tend to be smaller schools. Now, if you're a smaller school, you're unable to deliver the same range of options. So if you have a thousand kids, can't offer the same subject choice as a school that has two thousand kids. That's just the way it goes. So there's that at work. There's private schools can often pay more. So that there's a driver there, and if if you believe that wages drive quality but actually what is hidden in the assumption is that the only learning kids do is at school now actually that's not true most of the learning is Mm. happens in the home and so kids turn up to school at five in in New Zealand and what we see is that the kids who are not hitting their milestones at age five have a lag in their learning that will probably stay with them unless there's major interventions and the other thing is if you're struggling to learn in your five, six, seven, often that's associated with other things. You're not living in a, a stable home environment. So you've, we often see kids, I see kids that have done, gone to six schools in a year. And if, if little Johnny's parents are millionaires and little Johnny's not doing well, little Johnny's parents get him help. And so actually that makes the school look good. But there's a reason why, for instance, if you look at Auckland Grammar, not to pick on Auckland Grammar, but if you look at Auckland Grammar, around Auckland Grammar, there's a massive concentration of private tuition companies. Now, if you go to South Auckland, you'll see none. And one assumption is, oh, man, those kids at Auckland Grammar need so much help. Mm. But actually, that's not the assumption that we're making, is it? Is those parents can afford to fill in any learning gap and to cope with. And so what we're saying is that if you're rich and struggling, you're going to do all right. And if you're poor and struggling... Up the creek. Yeah, and if you're poor and gifted, which is the thing we have to be particularly worried about, you're going to struggle. You know, the smartest kid in the world could be born, and if they're born to a single parent who's poor and has other challenges, we are never going to know. There's, there's probably a kid right now who could cure cancer. Their future academic career is not going to be defined by their ability. It's going to be defined by the fact that their parents are struggling or... But if that kid was poor and got given help, we'd send him to King's College and not Mangry. Because well, you said maybe King's. you would, but actually, I'd just make sure that that every school can cope with gifted yeah. and um, students as well as students that need support. Mm. And that's what the government's trying to do. But often that means that there are processes that disadvantaged kids, for instance, who move around a lot, mm. who have undiagnosed yeah. learning difficulties. Because you know, if if the kids were really so gifted and yeah, certainly the claims for gifted children are more frequent amongst wealthy families yeah, yeah. than poor families. If those kids were so gifted, we would see. Mm. You know, I, I run a, I, well, my team runs a maths academy mm. in South Auckland for right. Pacific kids. Mm. And we had a, um, a Tongan mathematician, he's just finished his PhD and he working with kids. And here you've got a guy doing a PhD working with kids who are, you know, often as young as 14, 15, and he said to me, he goes, that girl, that was a Samoan girl, he goes, she's gifted. Now, when you've got a, a mathematician, university-level mathematician telling you a, a early teenager's gifted, that's a real statement. And, I, you know, we, we earmarked her, but actually we lost her. 
So, yeah, um, I actually moved schools. Oh, okay. Mm. So, yeah. is it, and isn't that what your point was in the other podcast? That that's why you, for you, Johnny, you you saw that Mr. Cowboy, the country singer who's making waves across the globe, really was gifted, but he didn't have the opportunity because he was on the banana plantation in Samoa. Yeah, exactly. But that was. For me, that was real because it wasn't a stat. You know, that was actually me seeing someone and it just mm. hit me. I said, oh my gosh. And it hit me in a, in a, in a real profound way that I had to kind of act on it. And I suppose when we, we talk to Damon lots and he shares that, oh, we're in trouble. I understand what he means because if these people aren't given that opportunity, well, what kind of life do they live? That's why I do go back to Samoa Heaps and I just... You can see it in their eyes. Nothing worse than seeing the eyes of unreached potential and they know that there's something, and that's the pain, is knowing that I'm great, but I just can't touch it. No, but that's you exactly said, right, eh? And some is, and they can see it. They can see New York. They hear Justin Bieber. They see all of that. They can sing it. If yeah. anything, they're way talented. But psychologically, they can't. So you might as well be in jail. It's worse than being in jail. At least in jail, you know you're in jail. You can't go past the fence. This is, well, you just, you're dead in the water. So, and we're talking about culture, stories, all that stuff. That's why it's so important for us to have these conversations so people break down the sides and go, oh, my God, I have a relative in that position, and if JT and his cousins can do this and give people the opportunity, stop trying to save Africa. Let's try and save our cousin who just lives three kilometres that way. So you sent your kids out of South Auckland and you've sent your kids into South Auckland? Yeah, my girls are. <laughs> and, you know, part of it was that when we came back from the States and we ran into it really early in the States that mm. they have conversations about race, little kids, not knowing that they're having conversations about race and you can see segregation happening within schools. Mm. And, you know, when you got your three-year-old asking you if they're white or if they're black, or if they're brown, where they fit in in a playground in America, that's when you start thinking about coming back to New Zealand, like, which is exactly what happened. Because but So you came back because of that race story, but is that race story being told here? Um, no, that no, no like you know, we're not really. Like it's, not so, as, so, it's not to that level. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've tried to tell that story and often come against really strong opposition because New Zealanders want to believe this is some sort of post-racial <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. paradise. And, you know, we've got... Entire schools in Auckland are supposedly, you know, we get people telling us Auckland's super diverse, and I'm like, what world are you living in? You know, Auckland isn't super diverse. Auckland is actually just not a city. Auckland is a group of really non-diverse neighbourhoods and areas. <laughs> and if you look at it from a distance, you say, oh, well, look at all that. We've got all kinds. But actually, in Auckland, you know, there's, for instance, one of the stats I use often is that there's only a, a one in three chance that a Pacific person as a Pākehā person in their neighbourhood in Auckland. Mm. Now that's that's kind of, you know, that's worse than like pre-civil rights, uh, pre-civil rights America. And so, you know, we can't even have those conversations without me getting sort of emails saying, oh, you know, what's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> and actually the problem is quite simple. We have no policy response to this. Mm. And actually most New Zealanders won't admit it. And things like school zones and real estate just make these things worse. And the reason it's a, you know, before it only mattered to people like us who yeah. care about our, our communities or care about social justice. But actually Auckland's passed that now last year, and New Zealand's passed it. Last year, 2019, was the first year since probably the 1860s where most of the babies born in New Zealand were not Pākehā. 
that means that New Zealand has already, the young New Zealand has already crossed that bridge. Mm. It's a majority Asian, Māori, Pacific. And if you think, okay, so the world has fundamentally changed. Our kids will not look like this New Zealand, the way that New Zealand's currently being governed. What are we doing differently? And the answer is not much. And, you know, that's what mm. the, the response is. How do we change things so mm. that we're not just running the world as it was run and recreating the problems that we, we know that we faced mm. in the past? But And not only that we're being reactive and lagging, but there's opportunity cost oh, because totally. there's so much yeah. innovation and, and there's mm. so much resource in this emerging population that we can really mm. grasp onto. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, mm. and I think that's, if you look around South Auckland, it's easy to get caught on... You know some of the really steep challenges, and they're real. The mm. housing challenge is real. The health challenge is real. But actually, what's amazing is that lives have been made that are thriving and prosperous inside this context. You know that people have found like really innovative answers. And the, one of the great examples is that Pacific people, largely because other opportunities have been shut off to them, have gone to ones where they they don't have to go through any doors, and that often means creative. Mm. Industries. Pacific people have dominated entire genres of creativity in New Zealand. I mean, R and B. It's just Maori and Pacific. Hip hop is like Pacific. Yeah, you know, and these are these are probably the most important developments we see. And and if you think about early companies that came out of South Auckland, which were looking for synergies across things. So you know, our own kind of hip hop entrepreneurs like Dawn Rains, they were they were across multi-platforms. They were mm. doing music. They were doing clothing. Um, they had shops. They were event management. They were doing things that actually were entirely unique. But actually, people didn't see it. They just got caught up on the music and didn't mm. see that this was a really innovative response. Or if you go to Otahu and you see people making deals straight with Asia, mm. they've cut out North America. They've cut out Europe. And now, you know, often use the example of the Taovala, the Tongan mm. waste mats that are now being manufactured in China for Tongan audiences globally. You know, that's, the world's changed. Okay, so there's kind of a micro-national kind of thing. We dominated the R&B scene. We're also dominating rugby, rugby league. But I remember, you know, in some of our conversations in that space, unless we push up into governance, then we're still really just yeah. the labourers of mm. that. We might be like that in the creative industries until we push up as well. Absolutely. Especially because the creative industries in New Zealand are largely, or have a huge dependency on, on funding bodies. Yeah, that's right. And until the funding bodies change their, their field of vision, they can't even understand some of the things that are going to come before them. Mm. You know? And it, it, there tends to be a, a huge generational lag, which looks like rugby management, so it's a good example. You know, and we'll believe it when we see the chairman of New Zealand Rugby and the coach of the All Blacks. When they've changed colour, then we'll know that something substantive is... Mm change that won't be the only thing but you yeah. think the irony is if you look at our own countries where we come from you know there's always complaints they should have done this they should have done that yeah but people say the that about the new zealand government so so and is it a cultural thing or yeah. we here we are in new zealand saying hey we need more diversity and then we go back home and it's all ours it's our language our own sovereignty but we still have the same problems yeah. i think that you probably want to draw a distinction between you know culture and governance and mm. wealth I mean, many of Samoa's problems would be solved if everyone was just wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the comparison of the, what's the GDP of um, Samoa's probably um, off the top of my head, like four and a half thousand mm-hmm. US dollars per capita. New Zealand's is probably in the high thirty thousand. Now, if you poured that kind of money into Samoa, you'd see most of those problems disappear. And so, you know, even now we've only seen. You know, not quite 60 years of Samoan independence. Mm. Before that, we had a, a really large period of colonial imperial government, which 
did its best to underdevelop Samoa. Mm. You know, so I think you know, there's probably a bigger question. Can we produce that kind of wealth in a country of the size and location of Samoa? Mm. But it's not the same as whether Samoans can run something, mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, or Tongans or anyone else. It's about opportunities. And I think that for me, the governance argument is not that we need to, it's, it's this, we're making the same one. It's, it's not that we need to do this to mm. be fair or just mm. or to achieve equity or balance, although we should do it for mm. those reasons. It's actually because we need it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, mm. if the talent is going to be 50% Māori Pacific mm, and mm, Asian mm. and we're just going to say well we're not going to make the most of that then we're missing everything that's special about the Pacific mm. Sorry, the reason why I brought that up is because yeah. that's a question of Balangi would ask Yeah. so oh, hold on you guys are saying you need to be on our boards and stuff and I'm glad you, you made that clear distinction there's this thing because it's quite a current topic because I think the Tongan rugby funding from World Rugby has been frozen not only are they under-resourced because we've got so much talent in that Tonga rugby team, but then when they are resourced, I guess it's mismanaged. Yeah, it's yeah. Mismanaged. and we can call mismanagement yeah. mismanagement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's a there's a hidden racial function there where mm. if one Tongan institution is mismanaged, we read into that that all mm. Tongans mm. are mismanagers. We do not do the opposite. So when one Pākehā institution or business goes under, we don't go, oh my god. Pākehā mm. can't run a business mm. yeah. and that's that's when there's no equivalency then you know something else is at work and so those yeah. are kind of hidden racial judgments because of course you know most of that's explainable through other reasons mm. you know, l- yeah. less less experience not properly governed or actually often poverty yeah. if if you're not wealthy it's easier to be tempted by money that yeah. comes through yeah. whereas if you yeah. if you rock up in a BMW yeah. then 100 bucks doesn't mean anything yeah. it's yeah. I don't know how we put this up but <laughs> I was recently involved in a meeting overseas where before we boarded the plane the question from you know one of the guys I was with was like can we trust these guys because they have a tra- track record of being corrupt and I knew the C word yeah. right corrupt is always associated with anything to do with Pacific Island gov- governance mm. you know oh they're so corrupt the police are corrupt they're, I'm like really and it wasn't until we went to the meeting they said oh I didn't know the person I was with had just, oh no, how can these be they're they're very transparent they're, you know and I said well that's because you just read what you got on a report or you're reading into the media you yeah. haven't actually you said they're corrupt but you've never actually met them you know yeah. so it's just I, again, I guess that's that's a big conversation around the unconscious bias and stuff I just really want to jump back into your personal story Damon you went from GI you crossed suburbs to get in your your parents made a decision to put you into Salwyn. From our perspective, Salmon was kind of like a edgy, creative <laughs> yeah. kind of um, place where people who dropped out of grandma because they didn't like the structure and that they went yeah. across there yeah. and they loved the freedom of. Did mm. you guys wear uniforms? No, the uniforms had gone when I actually they went after and during my third form year, so my first year at, at Salmon, and that that was totally true. I mean, so when when I started Salmon, for instance. They had uh, outlawed rugby in response to the Springbok tour, and it had never come back. <laughs> really? yeah, so, I was I, I was part of the resurrection of rugby. Um, there were a range of, there were subjects taught at Selwyn that weren't taught at other places, mm, and there was mm. a commitment to alternative learning mm. that was unusual at the time, but probably now would be seen as more common. And I think part of that was a, a celebration of diversity. <laughs> You know, but what that meant was that although Selwyn was in a relatively well, actually a wealthy part of Auckland, most of the children who live around Selwyn don't go there. <laughs> They're more likely to be bussed to places like Auckland Grandma, St. Kent's, Kings, and 
that came to a head just after I left because those families didn't want to pay <laughs> that bill but also didn't want to send their kids to that kind of school. And for me, it, it meant that it was a relatively safe place. I could play, and actually it was a very, number one sport was basketball. I love basketball. Yeah. And so, you know, it was an opportunity to be in a safe place. A lot of the kids from our church went to Selwyn, so it, right. it had a, a much bigger Pacific population than it does now. And so it was a... It was a place, and actually many of the teachers I'm, I'm still in touch with. So it was a great place to learn, and I felt, well, it's always a difficult time in high school. Mm. I have to remind people that mm. yeah, everyone re- remembers the glory days, but actually teenagers go through a lot. Yeah, in my current job, I try and remember that, that. So what did you go through there? Because obviously you're you know, you're Samoan, you're going into Samoan, you're excelling in the academics. Mm. How did culture or who you were play into your learning journey? Well, one of the things that you know, is often forgotten is how much Samoans celebrate learning in mm. church. And, you yeah. know, for me, Sunday school, I, I love Sunday school, <laughs> you know, because I love learning even, you know, and, you know, and, and you got prizes at church, which you didn't get at school when, yeah. you, when you did well. So, you know, part of it was, you know, that, that journey from church to school wasn't that vast. Mm. And actually the five hours oldest son and I were the same age. And so we both went to Selwyn together as well. And so... Part of that journey was easy because to me, Samoan celebrated learning. And, you know, it was unusual in the sense that when we were a founding family at Tamaki PIC and my mother was the only Balangi yeah. that went to church and still she still goes to that church sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, because it's her church. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, she, she married my dad when she was 18. Yeah. You know, and, and so most of her life journey and they moved in with my father's cousin <laughs> from... Um, so to her, that was part of her journey as well. I mean, she was basically a kid when that happened. And so that learning journey from both sides was about, you know, school matters, learning matters. Mm. And if you do well at school, that's something that your parents and your family will acknowledge. Mm. And I think that that was really important. You know, I remember those moments where I, I, I did well. And, and then you, when you get acknowledged, you think, oh, you know, it's and my parents would say, look, this is time to study. And there you go, and then monitor that you were sitting down with mm. books open. I mean, that was all you could monitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so so that part was was really not. And I had a wide range of friends, many of whom I'm still friends with, and I think they they valued learning too. And I think that peer group value of learning is something we underrate. That a lot of purpose comes out of your friends and that wider circle. Because you know, I don't know about your sister, but I know that your brother is one of the top physios in New Zealand, but he's also a businessman. So was that fostered in the family? Yeah. You know, my, my grandfather was a, um, was a whaiwhiao in Samoa, in Vaisala. And as we know, the pastor's families valued learning particularly too. Mm. And so that came through, although it kind of skipped my father's generation. He didn't, <laughs> he, he didn't really go to high school. Um, it actually skipped all of them except for the sister. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, so that was definitely a part of it. We shared that commitment to learning. And my sisters are both, so one is a deputy principal and the other one is a teacher as well. So, yeah, love of learning, deep respect for what learning can achieve. And I think one thing which was normal in our household was reading, you know, and that, so my mother would often worry about my older brother that's Jordan that he wasn't reading enough and so she did things like buy him comics and try to get him to go to the library and my sisters are voracious readers and even my father although he wasn't a book reader we always got the Herald 
Mm. And so my father, that's what he would do at night. He would sit there and in his chair and he'd read the Herald and there was a real sense of engagement through the written word, mm. which I think comes from the church too, you know. I was the same because I, I remember we used to deliver the Herald, but then we would take one and then we, me and my dad would just read the Herald and then we'd say, have you finished with that section? Swap, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and stuff like that. But today I often um, facilitate workshops with Pacifica young people and that, and, and even adults. And some of them say to me, oh, you know, us, we're not readers. Mm-hmm. And that kind of doesn't sit well. Do you come across that in your profession? Yeah, there's definitely a, a challenge around the. I call it the uh, making private of reading. Mm. So it used to be if you read a book or a newspaper, everyone could see you reading. Now everyone's on their phones. You're actually not sure what they're reading. (laughs) (laughs) And what they've done is they're subject to a lot of that algorithmic reading. Mm. So they read what they're served up. Whereas before in the past, we had a lot of editorialized or curated content. Mm. So if you read the Herald, okay, it's going to be flawed or whatever newspaper. But actually, we're we're sharing that reading. Now we actually don't know what they're reading. I mean, they could be reading flat earth stuff or who knows and so that is an issue I think the other issue around reading because most of people's engagement with the internet actually I guess a large part is watching videos but not a small part is reading especially of social media but actually one of the challenges is the duration of reading so when you're on your phone you're reading in short bursts and in the New Zealand education system and Sylvia Ashton Warner onwards they realise that having sustained reading is critical to intellectual development. So reading for a long time, Mm. because it develops things like concentration, the ability to um, condense things, to see arguments, critical skills. And they're as important, they may even be more important now than they ever were. How do we get our kids to know what's true and what's Mm. false? How do we get them to make judgments about the quality of what they're reading? So I think we need to encourage reading, and we know that reading is becoming increasingly gendered. So you know, it used to be a very masculine thing to read, I mean, it's hard to imagine that now because we've gone the other way. So in the 1800s, like, the great men all read and wrote books. Mm -hmm. And we've been in this period where the the reverse is happening. And now often I see young men, teenage men, say, oh, I don't read. That's not what men do. And you just, I mean, what do you do with it? You have to, I mean, it's it's a difficult struggle to win, but we have to win it because young men need to read and young men are not advancing to advanced study and the numbers, especially young Pacific men and the numbers we see. So for th- I hate reading and I'm 42. Now you live on your phone, Johnny, So and all you do is read. You just like reading and writing yeah, your own text. But um, I love it when I look over and I see my wife reading and she could read for hours and hours and hours and hours and I go, man, I wish I could do that, but I can't. Does that make me lesser or, or, or my ability to be successful or or my ability to measure any future successes based on the fact that I don't like to read. Like, because when I hear you speak, it's like, well, I know all my mates don't like reading. Are we stuffed? But I like what you mean, like, the younger people need to read. I get that. But I never read... I've probably only read like three or four books in my entire life. But my, you, my you read my books, right? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I, actually read, I actually read your book in like three days and I couldn't put it down. I get that. And the last one was Good The Da Vinci Code and I read that in three days and I actually got hit by a bike when I was in um, Amsterdam because I was reading it while standing in the bike lane. See, I mean, that's it. We need to put people put things in front of people they want to read, you know, and it's it's not a deficiency in a person, but it does limit all sorts of, I'm more concerned about it in young people. Mm. I mean, adults who choose not to read books for pleasure, that's a mm. different mm. thing. Adults who can't read 
long, relatively complicated text mm. sexually, that's a that's a that's mm. gonna limit what they can do in life. That's not you. Mm. You just don't see it as a leisure activity. That's different. You know, but if you imagine a, a complicated world where in order to understand things like um, climate change, you actually need to devote a large piece of attention to multiple mm. kinds of evidence constructed over a long duration. If you can't do that, then actually it mm. affects your understanding. Mm. You know, so mm. reading is is a way of developing that. It's not the only way of mm. expressing mm. it. But, yeah. And I, I think for me, why I asked the question is because it wasn't really for us who had kind of developed our habits and that, but it's for parents who might be listening. Mm. And we're speaking to the first Pacific Road Scholar, mm. which means we need to learn from these kinds of people. And if reading is a is a habit that we need to instill in our children, then it's just one that we have to mm. have to really really value. Because yeah, the the irony is, I don't like reading, but I always say to my kids, hey, <laughs> read your book. Yeah, <laughs> Even though I don't like it, I just want them to do better because I know for them to have a good shot at doing well, they need to train their brain to yeah. do all that yeah. kind of stuff you're talking. So I get it. The yeah. other side so of... do as I say, not... Yeah. As I do. <laughs> the other side of it is what you just said, Damon, like you've got to put things in front of them that resonate with the Absolutely. reader. Out of all the school... Remember we used to have school journals when we were little? Mm. No. There was one school journal... Oh, you were in Samoa, but... There was one school journal short story and it was called The Tin Can Car. And like 30 years later, I still remember it. And it was set in Samoa and it was about this family who put tin cans under the legs of the table and then they filled it with water so that the ants yeah. couldn't go up and eat the food and the cakes. Um. And one day the mother baked heaps of cakes for Kokonai, put it on the table and said, I'm going to church. But the boy was sick. And what he did was he took those cans out, spilt the water out, tipped the water out, and then made a can car. A can car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then when the mum comes home, you know, obviously yeah. he, he gets what? He's due <laughs> on a Sunday after Hallelujah. <laughs> he gets a, the rod. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that, man. So and, and, and because it resonated, like I could, th- I, I knew where that table was in my house, and I knew we had those white things that you put over the cakes and over yeah. the chicken and stuff like that. It resonated with who I was and my imagination. And then I, I just, ne- I've never forgotten that book, that, that story out of all those it's stories. powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And by the looks of it, you, you also didn't forget the cake. <laughs> <laughs> and you ate the answer with it, man. <laughs> No, but I mean that's exactly it. Putting at that kind of critical stage, yeah, you know, and that's I've actually I, I still write for young people, so I've written for the school journal mm. and those sorts of things. And actually, I was in Samoa a couple of years ago, and I wrote this thing for the school journal, for, uh, and so it was in 2012 for um, Tutotasi, you know, around independence. Yeah. And I, you know, didn't really think of it again. I partly wrote it because my kids were that age, and I wanted them to see to have something to read yeah. um, and I went to Samoa we went to a, and I try and go to visit schools and stuff and I knew some of the teachers and went to the school and I walked into the classroom in Napia and they actually had that posted on the wall and awesome. these kids were like yeah that was like I'd written you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'd written a 500 page th- and they were really excited to have me there and to talk about this and they shared their own research mm. around it and they were like 12 year old kids and you just realise that the stuff that actually reaches and touches people, mm. that, that moves them, is what gets them engaged in learning. And that, mm. that's something we haven't done very well, and we need to do better. I mean, you know, we've got a project which um, Carver Bowl's going to support around you know, producing a textbook for young Pacific people in Auckland, you know, which we're calling Pacific Studies for Young Pacific People. Mm. Because if you're not writing for Pacific people, 
then it's only just by magic that they're going to find some resonance. I mean, yeah. they will. I mean, yeah, yeah. some some literature's so amazing it resonates with anyone or with. But actually, some some readers need you to make the journey to them, mm, yeah, yeah, and say, "Here you are, man. This is this book is for you. <laughs> just open it up, and you'll see it." So then, how how did you go at Oxford? Because yeah. this is an institution <laughs> based in the white north, global north yeah. education and knowledge. How did you walk in from GI to Oxford, and then how did you feel? How did you? Yeah, no, it was a journey, and I, yeah, when you I was a lot younger then, obviously, and because you're younger, things are kind of simpler. It was also my first time I stayed at home, like, <laughs> so it was my first time away from home. <laughs> All those things, you know, I was 26 when I left. Like, Did your mum cry at the airport? Yeah, they cried. <laughs> they tried to chase you in. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I had no, I never had really ambition to go to England. Oh. You know, I kind of did it, I applied because people encouraged me to apply and then all of a sudden you're on a plane and, and then you get there and, and it's just a totally different environment and... You know, and it is, it is very Caucasian <laughs> in the broader sense, but it's also very international. So, especially amongst the graduate students, yeah. You know, so it was my first time spending time with a lot of Africans, you know, who became very close to me because, you know, there were no <laughs> people. And then, you know, again, things that I were very helpful that I didn't anticipate. So, I remember my first day, I met some guy who was a real kind of the kind of stereotype of a stuck-up guy who's actually from Germany. And he, I met him and I thought, oh, my God, if they're all going to be like this guy, how am I going to survive here? And then I was just sitting there thinking, oh, it's only three years. <laughs> can do it. And I got this other knock on the door and it's some, like, 18-year-old English guy and he goes, are you from New Zealand? And I went, yeah. He goes, do you play rugby? <laughs> and that afternoon I was on the rugby field and it was, it was so funny because those stereotypes work for you. Like, um... Because, of course, the rugby guys knew about Samoa. <laughs> and they said, what position do you play? And they hadn't even seen me touch a ball. I said, first five. And they go, oh, you start. <laughs> but Because we were, we were with you at the old governor's house and we were walking through looking at all the paintings and stuff yeah. like that. These are the kind of things that I think hinder a lot of Pacific people from yeah. from um, thriving in Western culture or wherever we've decided to land. What was it inside you that got you through? Yeah, just three years as a coping mechanism, but you actually you were thriving, not coping. Yeah. How did you go from there to up to thriving? Well, you get a good f- friends, right? So you have it's the ability to have meaningful relationships that sustain you, and those yeah. I discovered some of those. But it wasn't all, all easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's... No, probably, I think that, probably I was going to say it's, it hasn't changed. I think that's <laughs> you know? a message in yeah. itself, though. Yeah. You know, like, life isn't easy. Adversity is actually the gymnasium for resilience. Yeah. And resilience sets you up for success. Yeah. And I, I say this thing, so I, I run the summer program for the University of Auckland. Well, I oversee it, I don't really run it. Um, called Unibound. And I talk to the kids there and... It's always exciting for me because the school leavers, the 17, 18 year olds, they have so much energy. Mm-hmm. And that they, they haven't yet figured out that the university is not going to be high school. You know? And so <laughs> you, they think they can just express themselves. And it's wonderful to see. And it helps me reimagine the university when you think, if you don't know what the university is, like most of these kids, first in family, mm. you learn a lot about how the university could be better for young people, especially young Pacific mm. and Māori kids. But I give them this talk and I, you know, it's one of the reflections I used to to have and I say, look, you know, very few students who get admitted to the university and who work hard won't succeed. 
not all of them. I mean, some kids will come and work hard and they'll mm. just be too much. And I said, for me, the measure was I would look at my parents and I'd think, am I working as hard as my parents? Mm. Right? And, and if I knew I was working as hard as my dad, and to be frank, working a job that was you know, not a hell of a lot of fun, mm. although he made it fun, but if I was working as hard as him, Man, that's the roadmap to success. It's not all we need. We need the skills. Mm. We need the institutions to respond to us. We mm. need them to build pathways. But kids who are, are motivated and dedicated, their chances of success are, are astronomical. I mean, mm. they're, they're really strong. And often, when I'm talking with kids and we're talking about hard times they're having at university, and they're real hard times. We've got no money, got no mm. support at home. You don't know, you don't have the skills. You weren't properly prepared. That's hard work. Mm. But I often remind them, well, you look at those kids over there that just stepped off the plane from, from China. Actually, some of them can't even speak English. Exactly, yeah. Mm. They, go, they barely passed the admission test. Mm. I mm. said, I'm not going to sit here and accept that you're not as smart as any other kid here. We need to just support you and you need to apply yourself. And I think, you know, you see amazing success. And actually, there's a, often we observe that the kids have come straight from the islands many of them prosper even though they have it's struggle street the mm. whole way so we have to we have to make the universities and, and that better we have to support students we have to make sure that people are making good choices but when, if students train like they're playing for the All Blacks man they'll perform like the All Blacks <laughs> yeah, mm. true, you know mm. and I have no doubts I mean it, it's not I don't buy this that Pacific people are specially talented in rugby. What I buy is that rugby is one of the few places where Pacific people are given opportunity on a level playing field. And if they're given opportunity in a level playing field in chemistry and in physics, we'll see the same results. We'll see excellence and achievement mm. and, and world-class um, performance. And so, you know, we, use, we often talk about cricket. You know, if cricket hadn't put all these barriers to stop Pacific people participating, the Black Caps will be dominated by Samoans and Tongans too. I've, uh, cricket was the Pacific sport in the 1940s and 50s. Mm. And so it's about clearing the way for these incredibly talented and capable people and making sure they have the conditions for high performance and that we've got the right programs for mm. high performance, whether it's academics or sport or so, creativity. So while the systems are a bit flawed, the system has an impact on us that oppresses our minds yeah. and creates, a, some would say, a victim mindset along the journey. Yeah. How, while we're trying to sort the system, do we stay in that leadership zone or that zone of self-determination? And, you know, it doesn't matter whether there were sharks or storms. When our ancestors were standing on the foreshore, they still got on the waka and went up to Hawaii mm. and all the way to Rapa Nui. How do we keep that navigator spirit and mindset while in a system that we know is flawed and actually trying to move us back? Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is our families. You know, strong Pacific families produce strong Pacific children. Mm. And actually strong Pacific families were the foundation of those kind of voyages. You know, because it, it wasn't about navigation, right? I, there's a, a proverb from the Pacific, from the Northern Pacific, which says if you want to go on a voyage, plant a garden. Right? <laughs> the, the conditions for success are those really fundamental things, mm -hmm. like having enough food at sea, <laughs> having yeah. enough water, mm -hmm. making sure the boat doesn't bust. Mm -hmm. The navigation can only happen after that. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we are looking after each other mm -hmm. is, is, is the fundamental condition. Mm -hmm. And actually so many of our families are under so much pressure, so mm -hmm. much stress. And that's why that's awesome. the point you made in Island Time and using the garden as a metaphor is 
in order for us to have strong families, if that's the key, we also need home ownership because we all know when you own your own house, the chances of you moving schools six times a year doesn't happen. So you have a better chance. You're more likely to be in good health care, have good relationships with schools, with neighbours, with communities. Mm. People will notice if anything goes wrong. Mm. You know, and, and Pacific people being shut out of that. So, I mean, on the one hand, yes, we need to do things to recover what's powerful about our cultures. Mm. On the other hand, we can't let those institutions off the hook. We need to point out the problems with them and show a better way. And actually, what's happening now is many of these institutions are figuring out, often through necessity or de- uh, desperation, that Pacific people, Māori people, indigenous cultures offer a better way. You know, we, we were texting last night about um, Taika doing the hongi with Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo wanted that. And there's something about our cultures that other people want. They want, it's, you know, expresses in things like tattoos and that, but actually so many things that we Pacific people take for granted, mm. like big families. Mm-hmm. In an age of disconnection, when people don't even know their own family well, and you see Samoan, Tongan, Yuean, Tokelauans, who know, <laughs> whose families are hundreds of people strong. You know, that's the kind of basis from which great things come. That's where great voyages came. Mm. And so why wouldn't you want to build an institution that builds on those kind of strengths? And for me, the example that this is, people have figured out, institutions have figured out that this is a way forward is around well-being. So now we've got a well-being budget in New Zealand. We've got the Treasury talking about well-being. We've got every this, that, and the other talking about well-being. Who are the well-being masters? Is Pacific people. You, you ask Pacific stuff. people, yeah, how, how are you? How yeah. well are you? Mm-hmm. And actually people who've got no money and living a life where they shouldn't feel well mm-hmm. and often actually aren't well are more satisfied with mm-hmm. their lives. And that's typically driven because of their connections with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, We need to fix the... We need to fix diabetes, we need to fix obesity, we need to fix many things about our families. But those tend to be illnesses or diseases that have come outside of our culture. So, so the things like diabetes, part of that is a breakdown in this wider family economy where families used to grow their own food, where they used to always cook for each other, yeah. um, where they used to care for each other in this way. And now they've come into cities where... They have to fit in a three-bedroom home. They don't have enough time or resource or land to have gardens. I mean, you ask specifically what they want to eat, and mostly it's a pretty healthy diet. It's just not what they eat. Mm. They want to eat things like they want to eat bananas. They want to eat mangoes. They want to eat kāro. They, you know, they also want to eat bad things. <laughs> mm. But actually, the distance between what they want to eat and what they eat is is huge. And so, so many of these things would be um, reduced if we return to what, what's truly powerhouse about Pacific cultures. So there's obviously a lot of opportunity for Pacific people to contribute massively in our society. What are you really energised about in terms of our communities at the moment, looking forward? I'd say what energises me is young people. You know, people, young people who don't know, who, who haven't, been, haven't been beaten down by the world, who still think these things are possible, they're the ones who will make it possible. And I always try and recover that energy for the world and energy for change, and that we're seeing young people just go out there and and actually express themselves, finding opportunities. Um, we're also seeing, I think, shifts in leadership. Yeah. I mean, there was, I think there was a, a kind of, well, there was a generational shift in Pacific leadership that was underway and where young people were actually very different to their older leaders. So if you imagine now, 
most or nearly two-thirds of Pacific people in New Zealand were born in New Zealand. But actually the leadership of Pacific leaders is, was not didn't look like that. It was their parents. So there was a divide, and now that one's more in conversation. I'm not saying that we don't need leaders that are older and mm. from the Pacific. I'm just saying we need a balance and we, we need to understand each other. So I think those things excite me. I think the opportunities presented by the change in the world, so particularly what I call Pacific digitality, so the, the access that you can now have to all sorts of new markets and new opportunities through, through technology, but what I worry about is we're going to miss it, you know. I mean, we don't have a revolution. We have the conditions for a revolution, but we're not being revolutionary. And what do we need to be revolutionary? Yeah, so <laughs> I say the problem with us is that we've become digital passengers, not digital navigators. So when people talk, think about the internet, what do they really mean? They mean Facebook. They mean Instagram. They mean TikTok. Where is the Pacific platform where the, the wealth and the benefits flow into our communities? I mean, New Zealand is on the wrong side of that. So all the wealth is flowing out of New Zealand into Silicon Valley. And actually, Pacific people need to get into the architecture of the internet. They mm. need to make sure that the benefits flow to their own communities and use those things in a way different to what they've become. I mean, basically what we had was a revolution that ended up being palace revolution. Yahoo sank, but Facebook took its place. Mm. You know, Google carved out a space and then we realised actually Google carved out a space that was going to end newspapers yeah. and, and local TV. You know, and so what we need is Pacific people actually getting in the place where they can get some of those benefits of the internet and not just think, okay, I'm, I'm digital because I'm on Facebook. Nah, we, we have to be um, ahead of front. So that leads to Carverboard Media. What are you going to ask Johnny in his podcast? What's his vision for it? What's your vision for Carverboard Media? That's part. That's that's kind of the starting point of it. I think um, yeah. If we look at at what's happened, we've seen actually entire nations not be able to compete with these now sort of um, internet behemoths. We need a way of leveraging Pacific talent and content into sustainable livelihoods for Pacific people. And so, for me, this is a community project. It's about actually pursuing a model that can achieve that. Now, at the moment, what happens with Pacific creativity in New Zealand, and to some extent elsewhere in the Pacific, mm. is there's really only two ways of it that it's funded. One is by government funding agencies, in which case we're relying on them to see the contours of the future, which is not, they don't really fund the future, they fund people who've been successful in the past. Mm. The other way is being for big players from outside to come in and tell our stories and make money. The sort of Disney Moana model, right? Both of those are not sustainable in the future. Well, probably there is a place for public broadcasting, but that's not scalable. It's not going to employ lots of Pacific people. It's not going to empower them. And actually, Carver Bowl is about sitting in the middle and actually finding a commercial basis for telling stories so people can get paid for their creativity, even if it's not going to be a lot, at least it's where we can produce capacity, mm. um, including individual capacity, but also use individual Pacific people to leverage um, through scale. So to get people, great storytellers together so that there's a, um, a possibility for their stories to be heard because what those outsiders coming in and telling Pacific stories tells us is that people want those stories. They're valuable. The problem is the value is like a Facebook, Google value. It's not coming into our communities. Mm. It's being returned to shareholders of Disney. And, you know, 
I'm probably with all Pacific people, I'd rather that was returned to the shareholders of Ōtara <laughs> and Apia and uh, Nukolofa. Mm. And so for us, it's about that kind of vision of empowering storytelling, um, mm. telling stories that would need to be told, that we feel need to be told, and that other Pacific people feel need to be told, but also acknowledging the value of them and that there may be a value that allows some some return. But even if there isn't, and there may well not be a return for all stories, at least we've had that kind of sovereign, that empowered moment where we told our own stories. And I think people do want to share stories. And as we become increasingly diverse and spread, stories are be going to be what hold us together. Stories are what held us together to our families when they live in another country mm. and to each other. There's something very sacred about it. And for young people, stories are how they understand themselves. You know, as you get older, the stories are kind of woven into your bones, but a 15-year-old is trying to make sense of the world and find their own story. And you know, I don't want them to, to be looking into Google's stories governed by some algorithm that we're not allowed to see, run by a multinational that's only look, looking at profit. I want them to see it in their parents and in their auntie or in another kid who lives up the street and recognise themselves. And you know, that's why we've as part of this, we're also putting in some actual reading <laughs> components to the project because this is another place, you know, with reading, no one wants to touch stuff that's targeting Pacific teenagers because you're not going to make a commercial return. But you can survive on those stories, which is what... Mm. And, and you have to say, this story is so valuable. It needs to be out there. And so mm. those kind of things, I believe in, and, um, you know, we believe in the vision of Johnny. And, yeah. mm. and above all, what sits behind that is that the vision of family so this connection I mean well this kind of thing you do with your cousins for me I'm doing lots of things in the community that don't have a commercial return on governance roles and but you do them because they transform and empower communities and that's why I'm doing this I mean just these stories need to be out there and we need to make sure that we're navigating and not just passengers in this in this moment Sweet, man. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the stories. You know, you've navigated for Pacific people. How many Rhodes Scholars do we have now? Oh, that's really exciting. So we have, just after me was Alex Fuller, who's yeah. now CEO of Vend. And I'm really excited because I kind of said to myself, if I could produce, if I could, you know, nurture and mentor mm. another student, that'd be exciting. And actually in the last three years, two of my students have been awarded Rhodes. Two Samoans. Wow. Um, Katie Matiaki got hers last year and before her, Marco Dion. So four or someone's, we need the other islands to come. Yeah, we do, we do. And they'll, this is just a sign of, you know, it's, it's the first, um, first sign first of, of the many. season. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our show for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know that I have. Um, I know that this episode also will be a recurring blessing for today's listeners, but also for the generations to come. And I believe of that because I think we're going to seek out our own stories of success. But we shouldn't only enjoy them, we should also try to capture what's in the minds of these sharp, brainy people there, get their insights and their take on social, cultural, political and geographical trends. And this will help us to truly get ahead of the curve. Damon says that the conditions for a revolution are here, but we're not being revolutionary. So it should be that we have a look at what he's saying and try to grasp some of those concepts and execute on them so that we can be the navigators rather than the passengers in a rapidly changing world as Damon alludes to. 
There are so many knowledge bombs in that one. Some have already blown up for me and others I know are like time bombs. They'll become gigantically relevant and insightful for different parts of my life. Um, if you want more insights for Damon, follow him on Instagram and also on Twitter. And especially if you're a Pacific young person, follow Damon's new web series titled Pacific Level Up. He's made some time during this COVID pandemic to create this series just for you so you can learn more about the Pacific. And you can find that on YouTube or on the Carverball Media website, www.carverballmedia.com. I'll have all of this info on the show notes so that you can uh, check in on there. But please also remember to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with all the latest info in the shows. Well, that's it for this week. Looking forward to next week. Please join us again as we have more stories and enjoy more stories from successful Pacifica people from across the globe. I hope you're staying well in your COVID-19 bubbles and that you're enjoying and making the most of the global slowdown. Take care and God bless. We'll catch you next week.